Can I invite you please to turn to Romans 3. Romans 3, and we'll read from verse 21 to the end of that chapter and through into chapter 4. It's on page 1131, if you're using the Pew Bible, the Red Bible, on page 1131. So Romans 3 and verse 21 says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law, no, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man in whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? or also for the uncircumcised. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world but through the righteousness that comes by faith. 
For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and call things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Amen. This is the word of God. And it's the word of God that we're going to consider tonight. So please join me in prayer before we come to look at it in depth. Heavenly Father, we confess that even tonight we read of some things in your word that are hard for our human minds, for our hearts to comprehend. But we believe that you have caused the Apostle Paul of old, who swept along by your Holy Spirit, recorded these things for our edification, for our challenge, for our, uh, that we might be built up in the faith to which you've called us. So, Father, we ask that the same Holy Spirit would come and draw nigh tonight, that both preacher and those who hear alike would understand more fully your divine doctrine and purpose for our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The courage to be biblical is, is our theme. Um, we're looking in the third series, the sermon series, Faith Alone, Not Works or Merit. Let me ask you what I think has to be the ultimate question. If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? If you think heaven, please allow me to ask you one more question. On what basis do you think you would go to heaven? In Romans 1 and verse 16, Paul declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now this gospel uh, is simply good news. It's good news from God about God's plan of salvation. The gospel informs us of our origin, 
tells us of our rebellion against God, speaks of our destiny and the impending judgment and eternal punishment that lies ahead of us. But it doesn't end there because that wouldn't be good news at all. The gospel also informs us that Jesus is the central figure and plays the key role in the eternal solution that God has pre graciously provided to prevent us from going to a lost eternity and a place of perpetual torment. Now that really is good news. And between Romans 1 and verse 18 through to where we started to read in Romans 3 and 21, the Apostle Paul has very carefully set out his argument of the universal necessity of this salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is summarized in that verse that we read in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, throughout these chapters, the evidence points to this unmistakable conclusion regarding sin and unrighteousness. Paul says, the Jews are guilty. The Gentiles are guilty. The entire world is guilty. You are guilty, and I am guilty of sin before a holy God. And you know, the bad news is that the penalty or the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 and 23. But the good news in the same verse is that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so from a human perspective, we may not all be guilty of the same types of willful sins or willful behavior. But irrespective of our sinful variants, we are all, uh, and in the context of what we're reading there, it's literally, we are all falling short of the glory of God. I was trying to think of an illustration, just in case we're not getting this. Um, do you all see that light fixing right there? That one. Do you all see that from where you're sitting? I'd like you right now to reach up and touch that light fitting. Will you try that for me? Just reach up. Just reach up and touch that light fitting. And whoever can touch it gets just a huge reward of my choosing. I will probably, I'll probably give you my house and become your housekeeper for the rest of my life. If you can just right now touch that lamp. Who touched it? Lying is also a sin, by the way. <laughs> who touched it? No one? Okay, so who got the closest? It's got to be somebody over this side with long arms, isn't it? It's got to be Ray. Well, that doesn't count. Who tried the hardest or the most earnestly? That doesn't matter doesn't matter because all of you fell short of what I asked you to do, so no one gets the reward. Imagine that someone traveled all the distance from the lowest part of the world, say around the Dead Sea in Israel, and went right to the top of Mount Everest in an attempt to touch the moon. Would we be impressed? Well, we might be impressed if all we knew was that he had climbed Mount Everest. But I doubt if we'd be impressed if we knew the reason for attempting it. 
we'd think that there were good reasons to lock him up somewhere safe. And yet, you know, that's a fairly good example, or poor example, of what is similarly attempted by those who think that they can do something about their sin and about their standing before God. And that's the subject of this evening's sermon. Faith alone, not works or merit. During this series, uh, in The Courage to be Biblical, we've already seen significant and often opposite positions of key doctrines between the Roman Catholic faith and that which we're claiming is a true biblical faith that is taught and upheld by many Protestant Christians. Now remember, right from the onset and throughout these three weeks, I'm, I'm seeking um, not to compare cultural faiths where someone might think, you know, I'm, I'm a Protestant because I was born a Protestant or I'm a Catholic because I'm born a Catholic. I don't, I don't want to compare these things. Um, and neither am I really setting out, and I'm including you in that, neither are we setting out simply to be anti-anything. We're, we're seeking to be pro-truth as found in the Word of God. Now, in regard to the question that I opened with, both Catholics and Protestants will agree that when we die, we will either spend eternity in heaven or in hell. But where they differ from us is how God will determine where we should go. In his book, Nothing in My Hand I Bring, uh, Ray Galea very helpfully contrasts the difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants regarding their view of the way of salvation by explaining that it really all boils down to what we believe about how sinful people like you and me could ever be declared righteous, or to use the biblical term, be justified in order to be worthy of God's eternal kingdom. Which makes me ask another question. What is the way of salvation? What is justification? How can sinners be justified with God? Well, the Catholic view is that justification is a process. Salvation is something that begins at baptism and it continues throughout our lives by us playing our part in attending the Mass, going to confession, observing and obeying the authoritative revelation of God as found in sacred scripture, which, remember from last week, includes the Apocrypha and also the sacred teachings as pronounced by men, the popes, uh, claiming infallibility, including the stuff that we looked at last week regarding Mary. And in addition to this, you can, if you wish, um, pay for indulgences to hasten your progress through purgatory, or those who leave, you leave behind at death can do it for you. And so really for Catholics, for Roman Catholics, who are, are earnestly, truly seeking uh, to find justification before God, their faith, that sort of a faith, also contains a great deal of fear and lacks personal assurance because they believe that when they finally stand before the eternal judge on judgment day, he will consider not only the part, and it is only a part of what Jesus did for them, because Jesus, from a Catholic perspective, didn't die to eradicate all the penalty of their sin. He died because they were sinners, but only to make them friendly towards God, that they then could use their lives to work off uh, the remainder of the debt, somehow by merit or by works, get to that place where they become sufficiently righteous, 
within their own character or merit or to be worthy of salvation. A friend of mine whose father was a practicing Roman Catholic and who died just a few weeks ago, uh, right towards the end, if you said to him, um, are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell after you die? He would only have said, I hope I'm going to heaven, but I'm not sure. I'll have to wait and see. Uh, and he died with that fixed thought in his mind. I'll have to wait and see. A Protestant view of justification is that it is an event or a declaration. By complete contrast, the Reformers, as they read through their Bibles, they came to see what Paul is presenting here in Romans as justification before God. And it's got nothing to do with anything that we can observe or practice. It's an event. It's a one-off declaration in which God clears the sinner of all guilt. And rather than bring us into friendship, he adopts us into his family to share in the inheritance of his son, Jesus Christ. And of course, this justification is based on nothing that we have done, and it certainly doesn't have anything to do with any intrinsic worth that we may think we have. The only way for a putrid, wretched sinner to be declared just, blameless and righteous, is to accept by faith that Jesus Christ has died on his or her behalf. Whereas Catholics believe that God, over a process of time and, and a lot of effort on the part of the believer, infuses his righteousness into the person, um, Protestants, in a true biblical sense, believe that the sinner, when the sinner puts his or her faith in Christ, they are declared as righteous. And God inputs uh, a righteous, he imputes a righteousness of Christ to us. So justification, then, is a legal matter. No sinner can justify himself before God. All are guilty, we read in Scriptures, and deserve death. God puts the righteousness of Christ's sinless record onto our record in place of our sinful one. And you know, there's some really, really good assurance comes from this doctrine. Because once that's imputed there, no one can change the record. I don't know, maybe, like I used to, maybe you're one of these Christians who gets really, really worried and deeply troubled by the sort of haunting feeling. You know that you're still a sinner. You know you still commit sins in acts and in thought. And as a younger Christian, before I came to understand more fully the implications of being justified, by God and having faith in Christ. I used to get really troubled about my sin. Now some of you think, well, that's not a bad thing, is it? Well, it is. Because the enemy would take just the last thing that I had sinned with and say, well, you're not a Christian. You, you have to be born again. I'm going, well, I, I am born again. I was born again years and years ago. Well, if you're born again, then you wouldn't sin, would you? And, and God, God, God still holds that against you, and you won't be going to heaven because you're still a sinner. I used to get really troubled by that. But you know what? I'm not troubled anymore. Because God, by an act of declaration, has imputed to me as one who trusts in Him the righteousness of Christ, 
That's my legal record and standing before God, and it's unalterable by anything I could ever possibly do now that I'm saved. Some of you might think, wait a minute, that sounds like Rodney doesn't care about whether I sin or not, or whether he sins or not. Look, I'm not making light of my sin, but what I'm doing is I'm just making much of my Savior. I'm saved once for all by Christ's sacrificial death once for all. And no one can take that from me. No one. I can't change that legal position. No demon can change that legal position. God won't change that legal position because it is sealed by the blood of Jesus. And it is sealed in eternity. Now for some of us, it may just be a confusion about the terminology because there is a doctrine and experience that does involve a process. But that's properly called sanctification. Uh, these are big biblical words. Justification, sanctification. What does it really matter? Well, it does matter, as we'll see. Sanctification can change. You know, some days you might meet me and you think, Do you know what? Uh, he's kind of God-like. And other days you might meet me and I'm just not at all like I should be. My sanctification from day to day looks different. Uh, when I'm in a group of really holy Christian people at a Christian conference or in church, I can look really, really holy. But given the right circumstances or the wrong ones, um, this can appear very, very differently. Has that changed my legal standing and justification? I don't believe it has. Because that's fixed by Jesus. Sanctification is the process whereby I work out my salvation in fear and trembling and allow interacting with the Holy Spirit's power, the Word of God, to come to me and, and to change the parts of me that... and, and, and not the parts, because that sounds like some kind of dualistic thing going on, but to change all of me that still does not properly reflect the image of Christ. But when God looks at me, He looks at me through Jesus, and that's fixed, that's finished. I am already raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly realms. I am already in Him perfected, from God's point of view, from God's perspective. You see, if you're a Christian, a person who believes upon and trusts in the finished work of of Jesus Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, whereby he took your punishment and once for all satisfied the righteous and legal demands and requirements of God, then there is nothing either you or anyone else can do because you're already perfectly standing in God. And that matters. That matters. Do you know, I think we need to impress this glorious truth upon all who would claim to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Since the answer to the opening question for every true believer is, if I died tonight, I would go to heaven. Yes, I would, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for my sin once for all. That's where Regal Lee gets the title of his book from that old hymn that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross 
I cling. Or as Spafford puts it, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And so the chorus, the refrain of that hymn says, it is well with my soul. And dear friends, that's not presumption. It is the heartfelt cry of praise from sinners who live confidently in the finished work of Calvary by faith alone. The doctrine of justification is central to our faith. One of the great reformers, Martin Luther, called it the cornerstone of Christianity. G.I. Packer said, a church that lapses from justification by faith can scarcely be called Christian. It is the doctrine that answers the question, how can I be made right with God when God does it for you? Is the only answer. Well, that's the longest introduction to a passage of Scripture you've probably ever heard. Let me tell you where I hope to go with this. In the next five or ten minutes, I want to hit all the key verses in Romans 13 that we looked at and then give you three examples in about five minutes towards the end and then we'll be finished. So just in case that was a long introduction, we're here for another hour, that's not what I'm planning. So let's come to Romans 3 then, an explanation of what being justified by faith alone is. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, even though this righteousness was revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, it wasn't fully revealed until the death and the resurrection of Christ. Notice verse 21. It is based on what we believe and not on on how we behave. The law had spoken of the righteous requirements of God, but the law could not provide it. Indeed, since man could never keep that law perfectly, It only served to highlight his or her sinfulness. This righteousness under the law was based on how people behaved. But there is a righteousness apart from the law. Under the terms of the new covenant, righteousness is based upon what people believe. It is apart from the law. It's a, it's a, a new set of terms and conditions apply. And it's based on the new covenant, blood shed for us. And it's a blood that doesn't just cover Because it's the blood of the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at verse 22. It is centered on Christ and not on us. Belief in God or even trusting God is not what saves a person. Let me say that again. A a belief in God or even a trust in God is not what saves a person. It is having a personal relationship with Christ alone that counts. It's trusting in Christ and his finished work. The devil believes in God. The devil trusts that all of the things that God has ever said is going to come true. It won't save him. Christ is the one mediator between God and man. That's 1 Timothy 2 and 5. The man Jesus Christ, as he serves as our high priest. Find that various places in Hebrews. And ever intercedes for us. That's Romans 8 and 24. So we don't need Mary. We don't need the saints. We don't need the Roman Catholic priests. It is Christ alone or nothing. You notice in verse 22 through 23, it's available to everyone who believes. All men and women, whatever their nationality, race or culture, need to be saved. And the good news is that they can be. 
You know, it's verse 24. It's available because of God's grace alone. The great reformation cry against sola gracia. Grace alone. Many people think that they'll be saved because God is a God of love. But unless they understand how God loves them, they may miss the point altogether. We're naturally blinded by our sinful nature. And even as Christians, I think there can be a blindedness that makes us indifferent to the real meaning behind what God did in showing the extent of his love by sending his son. Let me put it this way. Lest there be even a trace of human pride that reckons that somehow we were worth saving or somehow that we merited God's love, let's consider the real meaning of the word freely there in verse 24. The same word is used in John 15 and 25 where Jesus quoting Psalms 35, 19 and 69, 4 said that they hated him without reason. That's the same word that's translated here for us freely. So, so get this picture, just in case you think you were worth saving. The picture here is that God justified you and me, not just freely that we might misinterpret that, but he justified us without reason. Without reason. Nothing in and of us merited what God is. By His grace, through the redemption, that's the purchase price that came by Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. Further on in verse 24, verse 25, notice it's provided freely, but it's at great cost. There is no cost to us in being justified. Nothing we can do to save ourselves before God and from our sins but it cost God an extremely high price it cost him the life and the death of his son I say the life because in order to save us he had to become one of us God had to become a human being he had to come in human form or likeness and we know that it cost him his death because that was what our sins deserved We couldn't pay the legal requirements. Only Christ could. Again, from that old hymn by uh, Mrs. Cecil Francis Alexander, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Verses 25 and 26. It is provided justly. Even as I read through that again tonight, do you know what? We toil over the centuries to see how God can be both just and justifier. But you know, God can never be inconsistent with his divine nature. And as one commentator puts it, had to come up with a plan that shows that he is both a God of love who wants to forgive sinners, but as a God of holiness must punish sin and uphold his perfect law at the same time. And that is exactly what he did at Calvary. Recently, there's been a lot of talk of of that sort of traditional post-Reformation evangelical view that I've just described there, um, of God sacrificing Jesus on the cross as being tantamount to cosmic child abuse. In fact, Steve Jock, um, who would claim to be um, Reformed and a Protestant in a book published a few years ago, the truth is the cross is... A symbol of love. It is a demonstration of just how far God as Father and Jesus as His Son are prepared to prove that love. 
The cross is a vivid statement of the powerlessness of love. But God is not powerless. He is mighty. He's powerful and mighty to save. The cross is much, much more than a symbol of God's love. It is a demonstration of his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and 8. And verse 9 then goes on to say, And since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So can you see this yet? While you remain dead in your trespass and sin, you invoke the full force of God's wrath against you. But the cross is the place where wrath and mercy meet. Graham Kendrick sums that up when he says, we worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet and a guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. For us, he didn't just die as a demonstration of love. For us, he was made sin. Oh, help me take it in. Deep wounds of love cry out, Father, forgive. I worship. I worship the Lamb that was slain. And then there finally in verses 27 through 31, it fully upholds the law. Justification fully upholds the law. So like, unlike some of the false doctrines that we've been considering over these past few weeks, there is no place for any human being to contribute towards their salvation in any form or fashion, either on their own behalf or on, that, on behalf of others. You see, if it doesn't start and finish in what Jesus did at the cross and by being raised from the dead, then it isn't saving faith. You may have faith in something. You may have faith in works. You may have a strong religious faith. But if it doesn't start and finish in what Jesus did on the cross, and by being buried and by being raised from the dead, it isn't saving faith. Paul clearly shows us here that the doctrine of justification by faith alone isn't against the law because it establishes and upholds the law. What God did at Calvary was, in effect, him being obedient to his own divine law in working out the plan of salvation. Think about that cup that Jesus asked to be taken from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. What was that? Well, it was the cup of God's wrath. And so in a final act of submission and compliance to the eternal will of the Father, Jesus establishes and fulfills the law. Its righteous and rigorous legal demands are fully met, and we can enjoy the benefit of that simply by placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus. I think the song's a little bit trite and twee in the chorus, oh happy day, oh happy day. But listen to these words from the verse. It's done. The great transaction's done. I am the Lord's and he is mine. He drew me and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. And then as I close, three illustrations from the life of Abram in chapter 2. He was saved by faith, not by works or merit. Verse 3 says, Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a legal banking term where uh, an amount of money is taken from someone else's account and put in yours. That's credit. Um, if Abraham had worked for it, it would have been wages. Um, 
those of us who are staff members at Charlotte Chapel here, once a month we are given a sum of money into our bank account. And never once has the, the, the clerks responsible for that said, enjoy the gift. Because it's not. It's given us due to what we've done or we're about to do because we get paid halfway through the month. It's a bit risky, that one. but uh. And similarly, in the account of David's confession after his adultery with Bathsheba, do you know, he makes this most astounding statement when he declares belief in an imputed righteousness that means that God will not hold even the sin of adultery against him from excluding him from heaven because it is forgiven and dealt with by the blood, not of animal sacrifice, but the blood of Jesus that was yet to be shed at Calvary. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are covered in this way. Titus 3 and 5 through 7 says, um, we'll read this in a few weeks' time, but it says, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us graciously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Secondly, He was saved by grace, not by the law of righteous observance. The Jews reveled in the fact they had the law and circumcision, so Paul just says very clearly. So this righteousness that was credited to Abraham, before or after the law and circumcision? After, of course, much, much, long time after. So Paul's gone, can you not see it yet? Well, just in case they didn't, in, verse 20, in verses 18 through 25, he points out that he was saved by the power of God, not by his own good deeds. Notice verse 17. Here Paul begins to focus on the power of the resurrection. He develops the thought of Abraham's old and good as dead body, uh, producing by a miracle of God's grace offspring that would be as plentiful as the grains of sand on the shore. And he likes, links it into that final section on Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 24. But also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him and raise Jesus from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 5 and 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So have you got it yet? Your final answer. If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Or would you go to hell? Ten centuries ago, a whole millennium ago, a man wrote these words. Be near me, Lord, when dying. O show thy cross to me. And for my succor flying, come, Lord, to set me free. These eyes, new faith receiving, from thee shall never move. For he who dies believing, dies safely through thy love. Let us stand as we conclude our time of worship together. Declaration of